Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Tonight is Tuesday night, September 28, 2010, and we're delighted to have Paul Peterson from Harvard on the line. Professor Peterson, welcome. Hi, Steve. It's great to be with you tonight. Would you like to be called Professor, Doctor, Paul? What's your preference? Paul is just fine, Steve. Thanks so much. The Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate and Learn Central. Uh, Illuminate, as many of you know, has now been subsumed into the Blackboard family. The logoing hasn't fully crossed over yet. You're soon going to see Blackboard logoing here. But Learn Central is the social network for educators that I work on for Illuminate. It is a free social network that has Illuminate baked in. And we hope you'll come and use it and take advantage of its ability to connect you with other educators. Coming up in November, our free global education conference, five days, November 15th to 19th, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and all free with an emphasis on inclusion. And we have lots of really great people from all over the world who are going to participate and hope that you will, if you're so inclined, sign up to present or just come and uh, take in some sessions. Coming up on the Future of Education, Thursday, Ben Daly from High Tech High. October 4th, next Monday, a special two-hour session with Edutopia and Deborah Meyer, Gary Steger, Alfie Cohn, and several others talking about elevating the ed policy discussion. On October 7th, we're going to hear from DiMartino and Walk on the personalized high school. Then Sylvia Martinez, Roger Shank, Kathleen Cushman comes back to with her students this time. Uh, Nancy White to talk about networks and communities. Uh, you'll see the rest of the list there. The most recent edition is Matt Levinson, who'll talk about his book, From Fear to Facebook. Um, and then on December 9th, as fate would have it, Julie Young from Florida Virtual School will be our guest, and you're going to hear about her tonight. Uh, if you've missed a Future of Education session, they are recorded. They're up at futureofeducation.com. Um, the the Montessori, Montessori High School session we did on place-based education, that recording is up. Charles Fidel on 21st Century Skills in STEM. George Siemens on Connectivism. The intriguing BYU-Idaho learning model. Um, lots of other fun there. I hope you'll find something. Kathleen Dweck continues to pull in uh, good listenership from that fascinating session, as well as Linda Darling Hammond. So from the other coast, from the Harvard of the West, Stanford, we did have two fun guests a couple of weeks ago. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. We hope that you will find ways to participate and especially to ask questions as we move to Q&A. Um, you have the participant window. I'm going to recommend that you go up to View Layouts and switch to the wide layout. It does make it much easier to see the chat. Um, you can leave messages in the chat area. There is a drop-down box to send a private message, but do know that, that as the moderator, I do see all those private messages, so they're not fully private. You can raise your hand. That's the hand with the green up arrow. You can use the smiley face or the clapping hand to indicate uh, how you're feeling. And right now, I'm going to give you a chance to modify this map to let us know where you're listening from. You can also uh, put a plug for your location, maybe the time and the temperature in the chat. Look for the wand to the left of the map, click on it, and then click on the map. And no surprise tonight, I, we are US-centric. I don't think that should be any surprise given the topic. Connie Weber, Connie, great to have you here. Rainy, cool, early fall in Michigan. Another Michigan Calva mom 
cold and rainy, warm and drizzly in Connecticut. We're having record triple digits here in California. Um, an early Indian summer or just a late summer. We do have someone from Australia. Nathan, glad to have you here. Wherever you're participating from or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you here as we are to have uh, Paul Peterson here. So Paul, I really loved this book and um, I felt a little bit intimidated by it because there was a lot of content that I was unfamiliar with and you have a sort of a deep grasp of each of the personalities profiled. Um, could you give us a short description of the structure of the book and why you wanted to structure it this way? Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, it's great to be with you, and uh, it's uh, very uh, rainy out here in uh, Massachusetts uh, this evening. Uh, the book itself is uh, focused on the history of American education. I've, I've read a lot of histories of American education, but I think that they've never really captured exactly why schools are the way they are today. Uh, you've had uh, some that uh, celebrate the fact that uh, American schools got better and better and beat the world uh, for a very long period of time, and you've had others that worried about uh, the schools uh, imposing the cultural values of the elite on the uh, on the rest of the population. But I, I don't think either of those perspectives quite got at what uh, really interested me, which was how was it that our schools always wanted to customize education ever since John Dewey wrote? And I tell some stories about John Dewey in the book. Ever since John Dewey wrote, we wanted child-centered education. We wanted to reach uh, children where they are. And uh, we've never been able to do it very well. Uh, one example of that is uh, individualized education plans for every disabled child, which was part of federal legislation back in 1974. Individual education for each child. That's a great idea, a great plan. It's, it, it makes sense for every child, not just for the disabled child. But we didn't get that. We, what we got was a lot of regulations and a lot of rules and a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of central powers. Uh, so power in American education, and I have to confess, uh, Steve, that I'm a political scientist, so I tend to look at things from a political perspective. How, how is politics shaping our educational system? And, and I, the way it has happened historically, in my view at least, is that we've had very um, wonderful people uh, with visions for the future uh, but their visions didn't turn out right. I mean, we started with Horace Mann. That's the first character that I describe in this book. And he wanted to have uh, an educational system that would uh, reach uh, every person in the country. And, uh, and even more important was John Dooley comes uh, later on and, and develops the, the concept of child-centered education. Then we have Martin Luther King, who... Uh, tries to desegregate our schools, but ironically, we've never gotten that desegregation. Instead, we got a lot of other rights movements that were really quite different. And we had Al Shanker, a trade union leader, who, who thought that if you could somehow um, uh, organize teachers into unions, that somehow that would transform the schools. And I don't 
think his his vision ever uh, was realized. Uh, the person who I find uh, really very interesting is uh, James Coleman, who was uh, at the University of Chicago back in the 70s. I met him when I was an assistant professor there, and and he actually identified something that was uh, that was a problem in the modern school, and and that he basically said. Uh, students at, at school feel like they're they're in jail. That there are these people who are giving them orders, and they have and nobody really cares about them. And so they they form peer group relationships that are built around the, uh, the sports activities and uh, adolescent life instead of focusing on educational matters. And so the uh, there's always this conflict between the people running the school and the and, and the inmates at the school. He he said, and and I found his ideas very very interesting. So when I get to the end of the book, I, I say, well, how are we going to change this? How are we going to take this highly regulated, top-down educational system that has gradually developed? Nobody planned it. Nobody said this is the way it should be. It wasn't that way at the beginning. How are we going to get back to our original vision of what education was all about. And um, it occurred to me that some new things that are happening in American education today, uh, digital learning, have an incredible promise, giving us first, uh, finally, an opportunity to focus on each child and to pinpoint where everybody is and what level of learning they have reached, and then to bring them uh, as fast as possible to higher levels of learning. So actually instruction can be at what I call the price point, the price point being the particular level of accomplishment a student is at any given point in time. So part of the, fa the, the reason that I found the book so fascinating was that there's this theme throughout it of kind of unintended consequences. and for each uh, reformer that you profile, you give a very personal history. Was there purpose to getting so personal about each of the reformers? Well, part of it was my feeling that everybody's own educational experience informs uh, how they think about things. And I actually tell some stories about myself at the very beginning uh, just to show uh, the reader that, uh, you know, I'm willing to shine the light on myself a little bit. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I think uh, in the case of Horace Mann, uh, he had a conversion experience as a young boy. He was brought up in a very orthodox tradition, uh, uh, fire and brimstone, and uh, he was afraid he was going to go to hell. And one day he was uh, had a had a conversion and realized, you know, God is good, and uh, I don't have to believe this. And this motivated him to become a missionary, but a missionary for the public schools. And really, his goal was to drive orthodox thinking out of the public educational system. And it was quite pervasive back in the. Uh, colonial period and the uh, early 19th century world that uh, Horace Mann was reacting to. So that's that's one example uh, of it. And in the case of uh, James Coleman, who I just mentioned to come to the more recent person, his early life, he went to a school in Lexington, Kentucky. And at that school, he uh, found out that he was spending uh, focusing more on football because the classroom experience 
was just totally boring and the teachers didn't care whether he learned or not. And that's where he developed his ideas uh, that later on would uh, say, you know, there's something about the whole way we structure our school system where you compete against one another. The students are competing against one another in the classroom and they, they don't like it. And so the, the, the student who's really doing very well is resented by the rest of the students and you get what's called nerd harassment. Uh, well, he had gone through that himself. Uh, and then we come down to Julie Young at Florida Virtual School is going to be on your show in a few weeks and I think you'll t find her totally fascinating because when she was a, a child, uh, she was bullied at school. And uh, even to this very day, when uh, one of the things she loves about the Florida Virtual School is that if anybody's being bullied at their local school, they can, they can escape that by taking courses online. We just had an incident here in New England where uh, a father rode the bus uh, because his disabled child was being uh, beaten up on the bus and he tried to do something about it and became quite a story in the local newspaper. Well, it occurred to me that that's exactly the kind of situation where having an option out there where students could take their learning online, uh, families would, would love to be able to uh, have that option under some circumstances. What the personal stories did for me was kind of interesting. It it allowed me to see the history of the reform movement and the history of education in a much more human way and to, to feel a little bit sort of the quirks and foibles of, of those different views and to kind of relax a bit about declaring sort of one core set of beliefs about education. I, I, I'm not quite sure why it did that, but I think it was because there was the sense that these were human beings who, who were imperfect in their own ways and whose uh, efforts often led to things other than what they would have themselves wanted. Well, it's sort of interesting uh, uh, when you think about Al Shanker in New York City who uh, really wanted to become a philosopher. He had studied John Dewey. He was at the um, uh, Columbia University and then he uh, wasn't able to finish writing his dissertation because uh, he didn't have much money. He came from a very uh, poor family or uh, his father sold newspapers for a living. They were uh, immigrants. His mother worked uh, as a seamstress in a seamstress factory, so they were just on, on the edge of poverty. He, this was during the Depression years. Uh, and he, he managed to get to Bedford-Stuyvesant in, in New York City, the exam school there, so uh, he being a very bright kid, uh, managed to get into a wonderful school. But he had so many challenges just because of the fact that he didn't have the kind of income other people had. And so he he ends up teaching in East Harlem and finds out that he didn't like it there. It wasn't a very good experience. He had these principals and administrators ordering him around, not sensitive to the needs of the students. So he joined the union and he began to see as his cause um, teachers should be able to take charge and take control of their own um, uh, situation and in that way we will create a wonderful educational system. Uh, but as it turned out, later on in his life he looks back at it and he finds that he's created an organization 
which although very powerful, has not provided teachers with the autonomy and control over their own um, uh, uh, teaching situation that uh, uh, he had expected it would when he began. So it also felt to me like the book describes um, the, a, a move toward more and more control that, again, wasn't necessarily intended, but that with each successive stage of education reform led to uh, more and more centralized control. Is that, am I, did I read that correctly? Uh, yes, it starts off, uh, if you look back in the 19th century, you had uh, school boards were very large, school districts were very small, you had the little red schoolhouse, you had the one-room school, gradually the school districts get bigger, Gradually, you bring in more and more professional people to run them. The, uh, the community leaders who were deeply involved at the beginning get pushed to one side. The state begins to pass laws that says, uh, this is the way the school shall be run in our state. Uh, state funding becomes much more important, and uh, a lot more money goes into education as a result. Uh, but the local resources uh, that uh, were so crucial for schools in the early years uh, become less significant. And then finally you get to uh, the increasing role of the federal government and I think it all culminates in No Child Left Behind which very few people uh, feel comfortable with this idea that the federal government is going to come up with a, uh, a, a set of rules by which the educational system is going to be run in the country as a whole and even though the federal law doesn't uh, really uh, control everything that happens in a classroom. Everybody feels constrained by it in, in a way that uh, um, really is totally contrary to the uh, tradition of American education. I was reminded of a, a conference that many of us attend each year called EDUCON, and it's a um, it's a conference created by educators for educators, and it largely you know, ends up being kind of a, a place for teachers and educators to voice their, their, their interest in policy changes. I'm also struck by the fact that often they want to change the system, but they don't want to change the control. They would like, they would like to have more control, but they'd keep the system the same. Does that come up as well? It does. I mean, the way that I see we need to go in the future is to put the students in charge. Because if we put the student in charge, everybody has to worry about serving the student. And it won't be students being told what to do by adults, but it'll be students selecting the material that is appropriate for them at a particular point in time. Now, this is pretty radical stuff. Uh, and I don't think it really could possibly have been done um, even 10 years ago. But with the new technologies that are coming online and the new ones that are being invented almost daily, uh, it's going to be possible to create courses that will, and also to find out from students exactly, okay, how much do they know at this particular point in time? Is it time to introduce fractions, or is it time to teach long division, or is it time to go on to your geometry lesson, or what kind of background in science do you have, or what's your historical 
a knowledge, and, and then you can uh, provide a course specific to that person. I'm also very excited about the possibility that colleges and universities can now begin to construct courses that are going to be available to kids in high school and even in middle school. So the whole distinction between going to college and going to middle school and high school will break down and you'll have the capacity to bring the finest people in the world backed up by the finest technology produced by the, the most sophisticated companies in the world to produce courses that have a have a, 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 a presentation value that is comparable to what we get in, uh, from Hollywood films. So all of that is possible in education, uh, and it makes the current moment very exciting. So there's a point in the book at which you are, are um, you you are part of a group releasing a report, and you're accused of promoting a particular politician's election, and you, a Republican's election, and you make the point in the book that at the time you were all Democrats. Um, but I, and, and as a as a political science person, you obviously are watching, as you said, politics closely. Do people ever look at your sort of optimistic conclusions here and draw? Uh, connections maybe with the work you've done with Hoover or other work and put you in a category of saying that you're trying to promote something? Well, the most interesting thing about uh, digital learning is how widespread public enthusiasm is for that. Uh, the journal that I am the editor of, Education Next, uh, it, which is uh, produced here at Harvard and uh, also uh, at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and it's a joint effort. Uh, what we do is uh, uh, we conduct a poll of the American public, a nationally representative poll of the American public every year. And the last two years we've asked the question, uh, do you think uh, uh, students should be able to take courses online, high school students should be able to take courses online uh, uh, and apply them to your uh, high school diploma. And last year in 2009, 42% said yes, they favored that, which I thought was a very high number because we gave all people the opportunity to say, I don't know, I have no opinion on this, and about 25% said that. So those people who were supporting it were twice as many as the, as the percentage opposing it. That was last year. This year, that 42% went up to 52%, which is a huge shift in public opinion in one, in one year. Uh, on most of the questions we ask, if we ask, what do you think about merit pay for teachers, you get the same answer year after year. Or if we ask a question like, uh, what do you think of uh, uh, the old child left behind, the opinion doesn't change very much from one year to the next. But on this one, there's a big, there's a big move in public opinion. And this, actually, the Democrats in our, among the people we polled are more in favor of this idea than the Republicans. So uh, I don't see this as uh, uh, a partisan issue. I see this as a very, uh, as a big issue that has widespread public support and openness to the idea. Which is obviously what's needed for um, some larger change to take place is uh, some kind of consensus around a non-divisive um, idea that would, would allow uh, movement to move to, to take place. Do you want me to go now to that slide, uh, what you were calling slide number eight? Would, that be, would this be a good time? 
Uh, yes, it would. Uh, so if you look at this, uh, you see the athletes there in Vancouver uh, celebrating their uh, the medals they received, gold, silver, and bronze. And uh, when you, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that the United States won more, more of those medals in Vancouver than any other country in the world, which, of course, we were pretty uh, pleased about. Uh, and then uh, I thought, well, let's just look at how the United States uh, uh, does in science. So if you go on to the next slide, you'll see that instead of being number one in the world, uh, Finland is number one in the world, then Japan, then Canada, then Australia, and the United States is way down the list. Uh, among These are just the countries who have won, won at least one medal. That's the only ones that are up on the, on the screen here. Uh, and so the United States, as compared to other medal-winning countries, is, is way down the list, and that's in science. And then if you go on to math, you know, we're at the bottom of that list. So instead of being number one, we're next to last on, on this list, uh, if you uh, went on to the math slide there. So uh, so that's a way of, of saying that, look, America once had the best educational system in the world. If you go back to 1960, 1970, there's no question that more of our students are graduating from high school than in any other country. Uh, our students uh, were the ones that people were, were were looking to America for educational leadership. Uh, but the rest of the world has caught up to where we are and surpassed us. We are now at the average level in terms of high school graduation rates. Our high school graduation rates haven't gone up since 1970. And other nations have now uh, moved way ahead of us. So we're now at the industrial world average. We're no longer at the top. So that sort of motivates a lot of what this book is about. How did a once-great system become a very average system? And I think that's what a lot of the school reform is about. That's what President Obama has uh, articulated, that exact same concern. So if that's the case, what produced it? Then I don't think there's any one person that you can blame it on to. It's just uh, a, a, a set of forces that bureaucratized our system and centralized power and have left teachers very frustrated in their classrooms. They don't feel like they're in control. And they've left students very frustrated because they don't see uh, school being focused on their needs and their concerns. And that leads me, uh, Steve, to the next uh, slide there where I talk about co-production. And co-production, if you go on to the, the co-production, if I can just explain that concept for a second here, is, is, is getting unpaid people, people who aren't being paid, to do the work that is otherwise being done by paid people. And that is a trick that uh, industry has been uh, uh, working on for, for many, many years, to make money by getting unpaid people to do the work previously done by paid people. So what they do is, Walmart is a wonderful example. If you go to the next slide, you can see the people all uh, uh, bringing all the goods to the counter. And, and, and they store the stuff on, on their shelves at home so Walmart doesn't have to store the stuff in there. Walmart has a principle. We don't want anything on the shelf for more than 24 hours. So they want us all to buy uh, large packages that we store in our own closets so that they don't have to. That's Walmart getting unpaid labor to do the work of paid labor. And here's, uh, if you go to the next slide, this is uh, everybody going to an ATM. The banks are great at getting us to do their work for them. 
or the airlines are just as good if if you go to the next slide. So there's the so if you look at education and education you have to get unpaid labor involved. You have to get the student involved. You have to get the family involved. You have to get the peer group involved. If you get all that unpaid labor involved in the educational system, you're going to have a dynamic educational system. But if you go on to the next slide, that's not what we've been doing. We have been putting more and more paid labor into our educational system so that the number of professional people per 100 students has doubled since 1960. We had 60, six professionals per 100 students back in 1960, and now today we have uh, over 12 professionals for every 100 students. And if you go on to the next slide, you'll see that the number of staff people per 100 students has also doubled uh, from less than two to nearly four. So you have had a huge increase in the number of paid labor in our educational system in the last 50 years. So we think that we need more paid labor in order to produce more in education. But it hasn't worked because how much kids learn in school today is no greater than it was back in 1970. And the number of kids graduating from high school hasn't increased since 1970. So the cost, if you go on to the next slide, has gone way up. And class size has gone down. So the green line shows you the rising cost of education in the 20th century from a very low level back in 1920. This is in real dollar terms. This is not inflation. But just a steady increase in the cost of education and then a decline in the number of students in each class as we're trying to bring more and more professional people in there to educate children to individualize it. So that's our dilemma. And if you look at our politics today, it reflects this long-term trend. And people are uh, complaining about the higher cost of education, They're the Tea Party and all the taxes. They're just uh, in, uh, expressing their concern that somehow we're not getting what we want out of the money that we're paying for our educational services. So it's not like uh, the people who are working in our educational system aren't aren't doing the best they can, but we need to have a new structure. We have to have a new system. And that's why I say in the next slide we have to go to the Magic Kingdom. The Magic Kingdom is in Orlando, Florida, and that's where Julie Young is. And, and here's her picture on the next, uh, the next slide. Julie Young is there um, talking about uh, her wonderful school, Florida Virtual School, the biggest school in Florida which has the motto, and here's the motto, any time, any place, it's on the next slide, any time, any place, any path, any pace. Um, and, and that's a very important concept because it allows their school to work with high school students at any time. They can study at night if they want to. They can study at home. They can study in the library. They can study in the, with their friends. Uh, and they can focus on the particular uh, approach to the material that is of, of, of interest to them, any path, and they can take as long as they want. They don't have to, the course doesn't have to end in May. It doesn't have to end June 1st. It can run over into the summer. They can start up in the middle of the year. So all of this is actually taking place in our colleges and universities at an incredibly fast rate. Uh, but um, it can also happen in our high schools as well.
Paul, are you taking a breather? No. Do any of your yeah, do you have any uh uh any of your um folks online have a, a thought or a comment? Yeah, I'm sorry that you can't see the chat that's going on, but I, I am going to point one out. So Connie says, um, a few minutes ago, she says, I'm trying to get Paul's main point. So Paul, I'm going to propose something. You tell me if it's close or, or um, refine it a little. What I hear you saying is that with the best of intentions, the school reformers that are uh, documented in the book have ended up leading us toward a place where we're not uh, really happy with the results. And what you're seeing is a technological change that has the promise of getting us back to things that we can agree on are valuable that doesn't necessarily come from a reform movement becomes, but comes from the inherent capabilities that are now available through virtual learning. Well, what I'm uh, arguing in the book is that the school system that we have today is a long ways away from the school system that we had when um, the, uh, the United States uh, began to create this fantastic educational system that was so much better than anything elsewhere in, in the rest of the world. Now. Uh, we couldn't have stayed where we were in the 19th century. Change was going to have to occur. But the changes that did occur uh, had many positive elements to it. I mean, we, we desegregated our schools, at least in theory. Uh, we opened up our schools to disabled people, uh, at least in theory. Uh, we uh, uh, provided bilingual instruction to uh, immigrant groups, at least in theory. Uh, so we we brought in a lot of new principles. We've had child, we, we said we've got to have child-centered education, and we've made a lot of efforts in that direction, at least in theory. But when you look at how it all has worked out in practice, none of these groups have been adequately served. And instead, we have we have an increasingly costly system that uh, seems uh, just to have ossified. And uh, it's so over-regulated and over-controlled, and all the interest groups are fighting over uh, their turfs, that uh, the education of the child just is, is being lost in the process. So that's point number one. And there is no single point to this book. There are two main points. One is that we we didn't get what we wanted from the reforms of the past. And the second point is technology gives us an opportunity to rethink this all over again. I, mean, you couldn't, I could not have written this book with this happy ending or this potentially happy ending uh, 15 years ago. When, but when you think of the technologies that have come online in the last 15 years, uh, they're really remarkable. I have, uh, uh, if you just skip down a couple slides to uh, uh, slide 27. And, um, and can you show each of those elements separately, uh, Steve? I don't know if your system has that capacity Un or not. Unfortunately, once it converted um, it, they're all jumbled together. But I, I think we can recognize most of them. Okay. 
you can see them all there, right? And that's that's all happened in the last 15 years, whether it's uh, Google or Twitter or uh, Apple or the or the, uh, uh, the the laptop computer uh, or, or Facebook or, or whatever. There's just so much there, and and if you think of that's happening in the past 15 years, you know the next 15 years are going to be things are going to change even at a faster rate because every five years the rate of change is faster than the last five years, especially in the world of communications. And you have to understand that education is really communication. That's all it is, is communication. And we have an ability now to say is to do is we can teach in three dimensions. We can have my avatar uh, uh, dissect a frog's avatar. Now when I was a kid in high school, uh, I tried to uh, learn about the frog, and I actually read the textbook very carefully, and I was very proud of myself. I knew where the heart was, and the lungs, and the digestive organs, and the circulatory system, and all of that. I was very proud of myself. And then the day came when we were going to dissect that frog, and it was just a, a, a total gooey mess, and, and that poor animal died for nothing. Uh, now, if you if you can uh, if you can dissect a cadaver uh, uh, virtually, and you can if you if you're in medical school, there's no reason why that same technology can't be made available to high school students so that they can do um, uh, uh, dissections uh, over and over again online without killing any amphibians. So I, I think there's just unrealized potential. Uh, for all kinds of fantastic new ways to learn things. So Paul, Denise asks, well first she says, she fully agrees with the notion this current school system does not adequately accommodate individual learning differences. She's concerned and overemphasis on the promises of technology. What things will get lost? Social growth? How will the movement towards technology affect children of low-income backgrounds with less access to computers? Will it further the achievement gap? Well, those are two excellent questions, and they're quite different questions. So let me try to take up each question uh, separately. Um, if you just go down two more slides there to this uh, wonderful uh, quote by Daniel Willingham, who's a cognitive scientist at the University of Virginia. Uh, he says that uh, working on problems that are of the right level of difficulty is rewarding but working on problems that are too easy or too difficult is unpleasant. And I think what's happened in our classrooms, and it's inevitably so, it's not the teacher's fault, you've got a very diverse group of students there who have very different levels of, uh, of, of knowledge in, that they bring to a particular task. And so for some of them, they are working at the right level of difficulty, but for others, and I just talked with my um, my nephew uh, in Minneapolis earlier this week, uh, and he said to me, he's in fifth grade. And I said, well, how's school going? He's such a bright kid. And he said, it's just awful. I can't stand it. And uh, I said, well, what's wrong? And he said, well, uh, they're doing metrics again. We've done this. This is the third year in a row. We're doing metrics. I'm tired of it. Let's go on to something else. This is totally boring. Well, he is a good example of this principle that if you're working at the right level of difficulty, it's rewarding. Now, he's a very bright kid, so he's bored. 
applied to the classroom setting. But there could be other students in the class who the material is way above them. So they're just confused. And so when you want it, when you talk about how do you eliminate the digital divide or how do you how do you close the education gap, you you the, there's only one way to do that. There's only one way to do that and that's to teach at uh, at the level that a student can learn. And the other thought that occurred to me that in particular in the U U.S. context is how important role models have been for uh, minority students, African-American students in, the, in, in recent time. We've had African-Americans in politics. We've had African-Americans as sports stars in the entertainment industry, advertising. And all of this has had a tremendously positive effect on the acceptance of African Americans in, in our society and uh, the self-image that uh, black people have of, of their place in our society. So, uh, but in schools, uh, what, think of what it would be like if you had as your physics instructor uh, one of the most capable uh, African American physicists offering the course online. And that could be offered to uh, students across the country. And you had the superb course offered by an individual who shared the ethnic background of the student. And I don't want to say African American, it could be Hispanic, it could be Asian, it could be all kinds of uh, uh, alternatives out there. But uh, I think that could be a very, those kinds of positive role models could be uh, extremely valuable. I know of a charter school uh, that is uh, actually doing that in um, chemistry, where they have a chemistry teacher who is teaching chemistry in Spanish online to students in the state of Washington. And uh, the school is mainly, be, the kids are mainly being taught in, in English, but uh, in these uh, esoteric subjects, uh, it's valuable to have the instruction in their native tongue. So it's a very creative use of online learning that reaches out to uh, students who might otherwise uh, be disadvantaged. So Paul, in those slides, no, the other go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, please finish. In. Well, the other topic was networking. Yeah, it was uh, you know the social life, and uh, I think that you want to do this on a blended basis. You you certainly don't want to eliminate. Uh, the high schools that we know today, but I think you want to build them more around the extracurricular activities that uh, uh, engage students so successfully today. So, if you could, if you, there's no reason why your teachers can't serve as tutors at school, that the learning is uh, primarily offered online, and that you can have a mix of uh, uh, experiences in your high schools and uh, uh, material presented to you online. They don't need to be exclusive uh, one way or the other. You can have a blended model. And you'll hear that from um, Julie Young because the whole Florida high school, Florida virtual high school model is a, a blended model. Um, that, uh, And she can explain how students can take courses both at their district school and online. We've done a couple of shows with Michael Horn, one of the co-authors of Disrupting Class, and, and looked specifically at blended models because they also offer a fairly good solution to the current funding structures. Uh, they seem to fit in well. 
Well, the the costs of education are going up and up, as I said earlier, and uh, we've got to find a way of, of offering uh, better uh, courses for less. Uh, out of out of you know maybe hundred people that know me. So, so Royce, I think so we're hearing you because you came yeah. in on the teleconference bridge. You may not know that, but you may. Right. That's okay. Thanks, though. Hey, Paul. Um, I'm interested in uh, a lot of times people use Finland as an example. So uh, Finland has, um, you know, sort of the, the standard, and, and Finland is at the beginning of that um, revised um, academic medal chart that you show, at least on, on one of the charts. Um, what, what has Finland done that doesn't seem to be technology driven that we haven't seemed to be able to do? It's hard to say. Uh, what are all the elements that have created the uh, unbelievable Finnish success story? If you look at Finland, where it was in uh, 1990, its uh, level of performance was exactly that of the United States. And over the 22 years since then, uh, or 20 years since then, it has uh, uh, steadily moved up to now being number one in the world in science and number two in math. So uh, it, it's really an extraordinary uh, development and it's, it's difficult to explain. I think certainly one part of it is the fact that the uh, Berlin Wall came down. Uh, the Soviet Union uh, was, it wasn't a communist country uh, when the Soviet Union was there, but the, but the Soviet Union was right next door, very, very threatening and uh, controlled a lot of uh, uh, what the Finns could do. So uh, once they were released from that, uh, an enormous amount of energy uh, developed within the Finnish population. So I think partly it's that. Uh, some of my musical friends uh, tell me that the Finns are the most musical people in the world, and uh, they uh, and that there is also a theory out there that uh, learning a musical instrument, whether it be a, uh, the piano or the guitar or the, uh, the violin, is so difficult that it's a mind-expanding uh, uh, experience that uh, affects your abilities in other domains as well. That's still a controversial claim, uh, but if that's true, uh, it is certainly true that the Finns are by far the best musically trained people in the world today. They are dominating the world in terms of musical performances as composers, as conductors, as great uh, world-class singers. They have a symphony in every community. So it's really an uh, amazing place from that point of view. The other exciting thing that goes on in England is the way teachers are taught in ed schools. Uh, their ed school is very unlike ours. Every ed school runs a, a real school. Uh, we have something like laboratory schools in many of our colleges and universities, but they're usually run as operations quite separate from the instruction of teachers or, or, or people who are going to become teachers. Uh, in Finland, the professors uh, are actually teachers in these schools, and the students work with the teachers. Uh, you're pretty much guaranteed a job if you get into ed school. It's very uh, competitive getting there, and you get pretty good training in that ed school. So I think uh, those are just some guesses of mine. I can't claim that those are the explanations. 
but I do know this, that we can't reconstruct what the Finns are doing. All those, uh, the only thing that we could do is perhaps rethink our, the way we teach uh, teachers how to teach. I don't think our ed schools are designed to teach uh, teachers uh, what they need to know. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that you don't become a better teacher by going and taking, amassing uh, the courses that are required in order to be certified. So certification does not lead to better teaching. Uh, so uh, I do think that we should take a good look at what the Finns are doing uh, when it comes to uh, teaching teachers how to teach. We obviously need to do a show about it. And Randall, thank you for posting the links to those articles. Um, I, I, I hadn't seen either, and I'll definitely read them closely. And if anybody has any ideas on doing a show on Finland, I bet we could call Linda Darling Hammond back. But um, if you have any other ideas, let me know. So Paul, obviously the book is much more nuanced than, than you fully had a chance to describe here. But I do want to shift the Q&A for the last 10 minutes. Uh, I do want to recommend the book. There were a lot of things that have come up in my mind that I know were addressed in the book that we just don't have time to talk about. Um, and, and it is a... Um, I found it a very compelling read. I really enjoyed it. So we'll now turn over to Q&A. If you have a question that came up in the chat that hasn't gotten answered, uh, please um, post it again. It was, it's easy for me to miss as those, those links and questions fly by. You can also raise your hand by clicking on the hand with the green up arrow, and then I'll give you the microphone. If you haven't tested your microphone and it doesn't turn on, we'll have you go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. So do we have a brave first question for Paul? OK, so Bill has raised his hand. Bill, I'm giving you the mic. Go ahead. And Bill, I don't know if you've done this before, but you click on the larger microphone button at the lower left of your screen to turn your mic on. Thanks, Steve. Uh, you hear me OK now? Absolutely. OK. Paul, you talked about No Child Left Behind and, and what it's done to ossify education. Um, can you talk about um, the race to the top and, and where does that fall in, in the whole process? Well, I, I am not uh, going to say bad things about race to the top, but I do feel it's part of the increasing centralization of our educational system. I don't think it's going to solve the problems I was disappointed that there was very little attention to digital learning in that uh, um, undertaking. And it's, uh, it's basically asking uh, states to spend a lot more time uh, worrying about what the federal government wants and how they, uh, how they can comply with this. I found it totally fascinating that New Jersey failed to, to win it because uh, they, they didn't get the right figures in the right place in the forms. And to me, that's just a symbol of the bureaucratization of our educational system. So I think it's, a, it's, more, it's really an extension of No Child Left Behind. It's not an alternative to it. And Paul, you do talk at some length in the book about um, the difference between how things get measured and, and what the results they produce. And you can't see, but Bill's clapping for your response. So he did indicate that back. But I feel like you do cover a fair amount of that in the book as well, right? I, I do. And you know, the accountability uh, idea, I can see where it comes from. Because once you have 
a centralized system, the teacher no longer feels like he or she is in charge. And so they sort of give up. And then somebody else says, well, the teachers aren't holding the students accountable. Well, they can't because they're so hemmed in by all the regulations. So then somebody else says, well, we've got to hold them accountable. And then the states come in and they say, oh, we've got to have these tests. And then the federal government comes in and says, oh, we don't like your test. You've got to have our test and you've got to do it our way. So, and now we have to have national standards because we don't like the state standards. So it's just inevitable that once you, uh, you start no longer uh, allowing each local school to operate in its own way and let students choose what, how, how they want to learn, you're going to get into this highly centralized system that's going to get very bureaucratized. So, Chris, I apologize, Chris135, if you've asked a question that I missed here. Is the question, uh, Paul, how, I think it is, Paul, how relevant do you find standardized tests? Well, in the world of, of digital learning, you will be using standardized tests because those, they can be used in a diagnostic way to identify how, um, at what level a student is current, what the current knowledge of a student is. So I am not opposed to standardized tests. They, they are very efficient ways of gathering information about how well a particular person is doing. Uh, but it's how you, what's the purpose of them? Is the purpose to uh, provide the information that a student is now prepared to receive, then they can be used very effectively. If it's to reach sort of judgments as to what to do with a student, well, then it's being used for uh, a different, you know, not necessarily the right purpose. Okay, we have time for one or two more questions. Again, feel free to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow or put the question in the chat. Uh, Tim asks, how do you reverse this trend to standardization, centralization to empower greater student choice given the structures that are now in place? What would the first steps be? Well, that's a good question because what I think you want to do is to first of all say to every high school student, you can take whatever course you want um, provided it's an accredited course uh, and apply it to your high school diploma. You can take it from your local high school or you can take it from one of a multiplicity of providers. And the state will pay the provider if you select that provider for the course. So right now we have Middlebury College offering language instruction to high school students. I don't see any reason why a student in Vermont or a student in Massachusetts or anywhere else in the United States should not be able to take their language instruction from Middlebury College. It's known for its excellence in that field. It's got to have high quality courses if it's going to keep its uh, reputation intact. So once you allow students to take their courses from whomever is, um, has an accredited course out there, you're going to put the student in charge and you're going to have tremendous competition among colleges and universities to show that they can come up with the best possible courses for high school students, for high school students. And then, and then if you, once you get it in place for high school students, you can begin to think about middle school as well. 
Okay, our final question is going to be asked by Nathan. Nathan, I've given you the microphone. To turn your mic on, click the larger microphone button at the lower left of your screen. Okay, can you can you hear me? We can hear you. Oh, great. My question is, um, we seem to be talking a lot about structures um, impeding uh, the uh, what we want to achieve in education. Will the will we need to develop things outside of our structures? In other words, the change will come from teachers and in events like this, I assume. So how do we create change when the structures themselves prevent us from changing? Well, it's a hard question to answer because there are lots of vested interests in the status quo. There will be people who don't want to accept learning online. They won't want to accept putting students in charge. And they're, they're, look, the resistance to that is going to be significant. But once the potential of digital learning becomes apparent, and it is becoming apparent today in our colleges and universities, uh, it's going to spread very quickly. Uh, it is the case that one out of every five students in our colleges and universities today is taking a course online. And they're not necessarily the best. I don't want to claim that we have the best online courses today. I don't think we do. I think we're in the very early stages of development. We're going to have a lot better courses in five years than we do now. And in 10 years, they're going to be a lot better than that. But once the quality of those courses become fully apparent, uh, and they are getting better as with every passing year, uh, then I think it's going to be very difficult to stop uh, this innovation. Okay, just quickly in closing, so does that mean that we need to address in teacher training courses um, things such as learning how to create good online content and how to engage students and parents, as we've discussed, in creating learning experiences? I think you should need to be taught how to identify good online content and how to access it. I think that the people who are going to be producing good online content are going to be teams. I don't think any one teacher can do it. I think it's got to be done by a team that's got all kinds of resources that they're bringing together to create the course. So there's got to be a, a big investment of resources up front to really create a high quality course. And then once the course is in place, then you can use uh, teachers as tutors and coaches to help the student with the course that's been created. Thank you, Paul. We're going to finish there. Uh, uh, I'm going to clap for you. Uh, you're not going to see the clapping, but the audience is now clapping for you. <laughs> the book is Saving Schools. Really so appreciate your coming on tonight. appreciate your being a part of the series and, and adding your voice in this um, just particularly thoughtful book um, that I enjoyed so much. Um, any last words? Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you uh, to all those who participated in their questions because I thought that was a very uh, on-target conversation. Thanks so much. Most appreciated. Thanks again to Learn Central and Illuminate for providing the platform and for my employment. 
And then remember, coming up Thursday, Ben Daly on High Tech High, and then next week on Monday, the Elevating the Dialogue on Educational Policy with the group from Edutopia, including Alfie Cohn, Will Richardson, um, Gary Steger, Deborah Meyer, and others. Um, thanks, Paul. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Have a great night. Good night. Thanks, Good everyone. Night. Thanks, Nathan. Good questions.